Okay. Some time back, the uh, executive committee suggested that uh, when I give the moderator's message, that I would talk about the uh, beginning of Southeastern Conference. And so uh, a lot of what I'm going to do this morning is talk about history. Uh, after a little bit, John's going to actually put my notes up or on the wall, and you can just follow along. A good bit of it is just sort of like an article anyway. So uh, anyway, uh, maybe, John, go ahead and hold off for a little bit till I tell you some parts. I want to preach a little first. Let's put it that way. Uh, <laughs> I uh, missed the opportunity to preach, too. Uh, history is okay. Why don't we start anyway in Job chapter 8. You could turn there. In Job, you have most of the book is taken up with these three men going back and forth with Job, saying what they tell him what's wrong with him, why he's experiencing what he's experiencing. And I don't always know what to do with the things that they say. Is Do we take... Uh, Eliphaz's words as truth? Do we take Bildad's words as truth? It's in the Bible. Well, no, not all of it. You don't. But uh, what I want to read is from the words of Bildad in uh, chapter 8, starting at verse 8. For inquire, I pray thee, of the former age, and prepare thyself to the search of their fathers. For we are but of yesterday, and know nothing because our days upon earth are as a shadow, are a shadow. Shall not they teach thee? And I think that's saying they, our fathers and the history, shall not they teach thee and tell thee and utter words out of their heart? And are Bill Dad's words about history here true words? I think they are. Did Bill Dad use them in a truthful way? Well, you keep reading, and he basically says, look at the past. You'll find out that when people, things like this happen to people, it's because they sin. He used history to prove a point. He used it wrongly, but what he said there is good. It really is. He used it to support his agenda. And history, like any other knowledge, any other information, can be made a, a useful servant to learn from but it can also be made to promote individual viewpoints, individual hobby horses, if you want to call it that. And, and Okay, I've written a church history book, and in the introduction I basically said you have to put a perhaps in front of every sentence in here. Well, maybe not every sentence. Things that happened a thousand years ago, we can write about it, but there's so much we don't know. And that's true 50 years ago, too, by the way. <laughs> we don't know their motives and thoughts and intentions and the relationships and the, the multitudinous details that uh, aren't recorded. And so we have to be careful with history how we use it. And we dare not think that our view of history is the only right one, or even the best one. Now, when I write history, I write from a bias, just like every other historian ever does, ever has. Uh, I like my bias better than theirs. I hope you do too. <laughs> but anyway, that's, that's the nature of history. We say history is what happened, but when you read a history book, no, you're reading somebody's interpretation of what happened. And even, okay, I use this example pretty often. You go to English history before the year 800. It all comes through a man named the Venerable Bede. I don't know who his sources were. I don't know whether they were good sources. They may have been. They may not have been. But the history we have for church history before 800 in England basically comes from him. We record it as history. But it may have been that some of his sources were biased, that the monk who wrote this didn't like that person, and what he wrote wasn't really true. Or maybe it was his opinion of what happened. We don't know. So, we don't have the answers, even in history. 
So I'm just saying this up front, history, like any other information or knowledge, whether it's blogs or news reports or whatever, is helpful only if the one listening to it exercises discernment, insists on objectivity, and tests what he hears by the word of God. It really doesn't matter what history proves if it disagrees with God's word. So, yes, we can use history to prove our point sometime, uh, but still. And, and I'm talking about broader knowledge in particular right now, not just history, everything. We, we all of us, it's almost automatic with us to, when somebody sets forth an idea that agrees with ours, or sets forth some view of history that agrees with what we think, or sets forth some view of vaccines, we all know what's going on, that agrees with what we think, we believe it. It's normal. It's bad. I'm sorry. You have to be objective. You need to look and see, is this the truth or is it not? And if you don't, you're going to be deceived, whether it's vaccines, whether it's the doctrine, whatever it is. We've got to look at the truth. And, okay, can you go to this and say vaccines are right or wrong? No. Where are you going to go? Well, there are proven well-used ways to find out whether your source is a reliable source or not. It's possible. Do it. We need to be finding out the truth, not just what somebody says. And it doesn't matter if somebody got the vaccine last week and now they're dead. They also got up that morning and drank a cup of coffee and now they're dead. Big whoop. I mean, it happens. People die. Uh, sorry, I just hear some of these things and they to prove something, and I'm saying, come on, people, we need to be objective, we need to look at it, and find out what's true. Okay. Proverbs 18, 17 says, he that is first in his own cause seems just, but his neighbor comes and searches him. And we've all experienced that, all of us who are leaders, somebody comes to us and they tell us how badly somebody treated them. It sounds bad until we go talk to him and hear his side. And all of a sudden, things look a whole lot different. You ever notice? If you didn't, you will find it out. There's two sides to that story. And so Proverbs, a few verses before that, says, He that answereth a matter before he heareth it, it's a folly and shame to him. Okay. We... Truth is never completed in this life. And I'll have to try to tell you what I mean by that. We know thy word is truth. <laughs> How many of you have learned all the truth that this book contains? How many of you are willing to admit that probably some of what you consider as truth needs some adjustment yet? I'm pretty sure it does. <laughs> that way with me. I don't have the answers. I'm capable of seeing this wrong. And I, I often hear somebody else interpret a passage differently than I always have. And I think, hey, that's good. I like that. We need each other. And we don't have it figured out in anything like we think we do. He that thinketh he knoweth anything doesn't know yet how he ought to know. We ought to take that to heart. Okay. It's a basic principle, it's a, it's a basic truth. In any subject, any field that we want to talk about, we have much to learn, and it doesn't matter what stage we're in. So Brother Ben there's 80 years old plus, I don't know, but he's been reading the Bible for 100 years or more, and well, I mean, I don't know, a long time, and, and read it again and again and again and again. Ben, you still read the Bible? You still learn anything new? Okay. Okay, just making sure. The more we learn about any given subject area, the, the more there is to learn. I find that in history very quickly. The more I learn, you know, 
And that's something else I say in the introduction to that book I wrote. You could probably take a paragraph out of this book, and if you went and Googled it, I don't say it that way, but you could probably find whole books written on what I said in one paragraph. Whole books! And there's a lot of stuff there we don't know. And it would make a difference maybe if we did. The universe, the scientists, they... They say it's expanding. I don't understand what they mean by that exactly, but I do know that the further they go, trillions of light years out there, I don't know how, probably not that far, millions. There's more out there, more that they don't know. They've learned that there's just, and, and you think about the size of the sphere, and, and the more you learn, the more there is you don't know. It works that way if you're learning a new language. You know, I've worked on Spanish for seven years now. I haven't gotten real far, but the more I learn, the more I realize, you know, you just have to go there and live for years and years to really do it right and to really understand all the nuances and everything involved. The more you learn, the more you realize, you should realize that you don't know very much. The doctors, they learn more and more. And yet, further they go, <laughs> the more... They realize they don't know it all. There are so many areas, and then you have specialists to go into one area. That's why you have specialists. The farmers. So you've been farming 40 years. Do you do the same the things the same way you did back 40 years ago? Have things changed? Why? You've learned a lot. Are they still changing? Of course they're changing. Well, history is that way, too. You keep on learning. I, so I... This book of mine was printed a few years back, and, and well, you get to the point where you got to go ahead and print it, even though yeah, I could learn some more and add to this and change that, and, and I'm facing again with the next book. Where do you stop? I can keep learning. Christian life is that way, too. History is complicated. Life is complicated. Being faithful in one sense is complicated. Now, in another sense, it's not. It's simple. It's not a matter of holding a line, it's a matter of holding to the head. Now, keeping a church faithful, yes, there's a place to hold the line and all of that. We, but we need a single, simple guide, the living word of God, as revealed in the written word of God. And if our focus is on him, if our heart is set on him, individually, together, then we've got something simple, a foundation we can build on. Oh, we're going to face the complications. So we spent two hours yesterday round and around and around and around. Well, we needed to do that. Much as some of us get tired of it. Okay. Especially the moderator when he can't quite figure out how to bring it to a close. But anyway. But Isaiah 8.20 still applies to the law and to the testimony. If they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. Not the old law, the new law of liberty, the law of love, the royal law. The Lord Jesus, his words, the words of the apostles, the teachings of the New Testament. All right, enough philosophizing. Let's go ahead. Brother John, you can throw up there what you can kind of follow along if you like. So we go back to the first Mennonite immigrants who came to America, came to Germantown in 1683. Those are the first who came and stayed. They came from what we would call Germany, Platinet, that area. After 1700, a major migration of Mennonites and other Germans to Pennsylvania began. They continued a number of decades into the 1700s. A lot of them settled in Lancaster County, Mennonites in Lancaster County, began to become well-to-do. They loved that land, and they farmed it, and they got richer, and so on. People kept coming, especially German immigrants came to that area, and as they came in, the land filled up. Uh, Mennonites started giving their children land, or selling however they did it, I don't know exactly. And they started moving on to regions beyond. They didn't all fit in Lancaster County anymore. Some went west, some went north, some came to the Shenandoah Valley. They were here by the 1720s, probably a little earlier. They clung to their German language, 
They remain slow to accept change, both spiritually, churchly, and otherwise. One example I found interesting, the Lancaster County Mennonites, some of them insisted it's wrong to use gypsum to enrich your soil. They were hauling in gypsum from Nova Scotia, I think. We ought to be satisfied to use the land like God made it. They said. Now, think about salvation. These descendants of the martyrs viewed salvation not as a new birth experience, but as a life of obedience to Christ, lived out in love, non-resistance, non-worldliness, all in subjection, submission one to another in a disciplined church body. We heard last evening, humility was a prized virtue. In contrast to the pride and ambition of the world around them. Now we call ourselves Anabaptists and we are their children. However, we are not like them. We have changed a lot. We've been influenced, changed by a multitude of other traditions along the way. Some of them were helpful, some were unhelpful. Our forefathers were persecuted by some of them. That's forced some changes. They then, and we now, have had members taken from us by other traditions, and that was happening all along. And uh, taken from, maybe is not the right wording, our young people through those years, and sometimes the older folks, left voluntarily. They saw something that appealed to them somewhere else. And those who leave us today are doing the same thing seeing something that feels more. Why has that happened? One reason, one only, not the, all of it, is that the old cross-bearing faith, and you can just follow along, I'm going to read this, the faith that requires submission to the brotherhood, that renounces self to the point of submitting meekly to one another and the body, and to consciously choosing not to be angry or combative or retaliatory in words, and to reject even thinking judgmental thoughts about another, to purposely climb down the ladder into humility instead of up the ladder of financial worldly success or social acceptance, to allow oneself to be looked upon as backward and ignorant by one's neighbors, to be cursed and misunderstood for not having and expressing opinions on the political issues of the day, which to our evangelical neighbors are so clearly right and wrong, this cross-bearing life is not the life the flesh wants just doesn't come normal to the flesh. And the evangelicals around them in their day, those around us in ours, offer a much more flesh-pleasing flesh Christianity. That's not the whole story. Some Mennonites failed to pass on to their children that, that spiritual understanding of life, about humility and climbing down the ladder and so forth. Some children who grew up in it failed to maintain it. You have different kinds of results there. Some became staid and tradition-bound. Some churches just grew within themselves, and, and the ordnung became the gospel. Some simply said, not for me, I'm out of here. They wanted to live their own lives, and they did so. Some looked at the, those that were gathering into the ordnung and making that their life and, and said, we want nothing of that. Look at these wonderful Protestant pietistic neighbors out there. And they, they heard their exciting conversion stories. They loved to tell their testimonies. They said, yep, that's for me. That's the gospel. And of course, some of the Mennonite leaders did not really realize the need for the change and growth in their churches. And, and they weren't all dead. Really, they weren't. Some historians paint them as pretty much dead in that time. But congregational life waxed and waned then, just like it does now. And the broader church did too, somewhat. So, come on down to Virginia Conference in the 1900s, one movement that influenced the whole Mennonite church and eventually morphed into evangelicalism, I think we could say, is fundamentalism. The college here was started right in the middle of all of that. It was designed to be a bastion of conservatism and Mennonite fundamentalism. And uh, if you go back and look at the history and the pictures, it looked like it got off to a good start. But in the parentheses, 
thinking about college, education is just another one of those ladders that we can tend to climb right up out of the Christ-pleasing life, the self-denying life. And we've seen some of the results of that, too. The drift kept on, and I call the drift the tendency to forget the humility, to forsake the downward ladder of following Jesus in submission and meekness, and to begin climbing the world's ladders upward instead. That's the drift. It kept on through the 1900s. I mentioned then the next paragraph, some of the great changes in American society that affected us along the way. The Industrial Revolution, the Manufacturing Revolution changed everybody's lifestyle. Made available products, it made available leisure time that would have once been enjoyed only by the wealthy. Though uh, Mennonites who'd settled for a while were often getting wealthy. There's the story in uh, John L. Ruth's book about the man who wrote about coming along the pike there in Lancaster County, and he could see the evolution of the Mennonites. The old, original log cabin was still there, probably used as a shed or something now. Next to it was the white frame house. Next to it was the bigger, better sandstone mansion. They didn't all go that way. They were climbing the ladder. And so all this change in the late 1700s and through the 1800s, manufactured textiles and clothing, this is just one example, made it easy, less expensive to look and live like everybody else. No one wore homespun anymore. Who ever heard of that? You know what homespun was? <laughs> Stuff they spun at home, and that's not done anymore. You go to the store and buy it, and it's ready-made, and it looks just like everyone else. And the Mennonites had never quite done that before. The old farming as a way of family life gave way to dad going to work. That, in turn, led to many opportunities to climb ladders other than spiritual ones. So, by the 1950s, Virginia Conference was seeing more signs of society, worldliness creeping into the church. Virginia Conference encompassed Virginia and, and some broader areas, too. But, okay, you had the northern district in the south, I mean the north, <laughs> the lower district, they called it originally, the middle district, which the line ran across at Mount Clinton Pike. And then, the, not getting this right, the southern district was Waynesboro in that area. I'm not sure exactly where the line was drawn there. A large section of the middle district was, for whatever reason, I, I haven't, I'm not sure I can say all of that right now, was more conservative than much of, than much of Virginia Conference. And... They were getting concerned about the worldliness coming into the conference. In October 1963, and I don't have the records of how all that worked, uh, the Executive Committee of Virginia Conference worked with the ordained men in Middle District to, to separate Middle District and make it, or separate the conservative part in, from the, uh, okay, they made it into three districts. The conservative part became West Valley District, and they had a somewhat separate administration. Not total. They were still in Virginia Conference. They still served on Virginia Conference committees, uh, served on general conference committees, those kind of things. And I listed the congregations there. West Valley District at that time, Bank, Bethany, Mount Hermon, Peak, Pike, Raleigh Springs, and Temple Hill in Virginia. In West Virginia, Brushy Run, North Fork, Roaring Run, I wasn't sure if that was Roaring Run or Roaring Creek, but Roaring Run is what it said. Samoda, Smoke Hole, and Spruce Mountain, and one in Georgia, Hepzibah. Uh, one of the first meetings of, quote, all the ordained in this district, I listed those just because I thought you might be interested, Lloyd S. Hurst, D.W. Lehman, and it said he holds an emirate, however you say that word, relationship in the district. <laughs> there were 12 ministers, Ryan W. Benner, Aldine Brenneman, Menno Brunk, Earl Champ, Earl Hartzler, Ralph Heatwall, Simeon Heatwall, Oliver Keener, John Kurtz, Olin McDormand, Byard Shank, James Shank, Six Deacons, David Barnhart, Jacob Brubaker, Enos Heatwall, Melvin J. Heatwall, Herman W. Nicely, Boyd L. Shank. 
thinking about them this morning, I don't think I remember more than half of them. Brother Larry, Brother John, a couple of you older ones probably knew them all a little bit. As time went on, concerns came occasionally to the district ministry. I put one here that Brother Ralph Heatwell shared in 1967. This is just a quote from the minute. He said that some families say they expect the ministry of West Rockingham District to hold up the standard. They don't want to be let down by the ministry when they try to maintain a standard in the home. But there are some homes in which no standard of nonconformity is maintained. The young people are departing from church standards, and the parents are going along with their children and are critical of the district for not going along with the tide of worldliness. One father said he believes that there's nothing to the head veiling for sisters. He called it an old practice. Some homes are desiring TV, and some are getting it. So those kind of things came over the years some. Concerns about the direction of Virginia Conference, of which they were a part and felt obligated to support, continued to grow too. Now, I think what Ralph was talking about there was things actually happening in West Valley District. This was the broader conference. So on July 6, 1968, the West Valley District Ministry took this action with the 1968 sessions of Virginia Conference close at hand. It was expressed by a number of our brethren that we should present the conference a statement expressing our concerns Call attention to various deviations from the rules and discipline in the conference constituency. It was decided that our bishops, uh, Lloyd Hurst and John Risser by this time now, and others that they select draw uh, that, and others that they select draw up a statement and bring it to a called meeting of council on July 15th. So on July 15th, the committee of brethren, Lloyd Hurst, John Ritzer, Daniel Brubaker, Lloyd Hartzler, Boyd Shank presented a statement of concerns they had prepared and asked for suggestions. After further work on the statement together, the following action was taken, that we adopt the statement of concern, that it be forwarded to the Arranging Committee of Virginia Conference. The Arranging Committee was a committee in Virginia Conference that arranged what came to conference. So they sent it to that committee to go to conference. And I didn't put this paper in, just uh, summarize it very briefly. This paper focused on some parts of the Virginia Mennonite Conference rules and discipline that were being widely ignored in administration across the conference. They included some areas where members were simply disobeying scripture. Women cutting their hair, not wearing coverings was the one I remember right off that was mentioned. But this was just growing in the conference. The conference response was to officially reaffirm its commitment to the rules and discipline. Otherwise, nothing changed. Sixteen months later, in a November 8th meeting, this is still 1969, the district council, toward the end of the minute, I found this note. A number of brethren shared their concerns regarding our relationships to Virginia Conference. No action was taken. They're talking about it. The next meeting that must have led to this one. We're talking about uh, two months later. Brother John Risser projected the following questions for consideration. And that's the way the minute said it. I don't know if they <clears throat> projected it on an overhead projector or, or whether he just gave them. But anyway, it was interesting wording. And there they are. These are questions for them to discuss. What unscriptural conditions have developed in our conference which lead us to question our present conference relationship? What Biblical objectives can be best realized by continuing our present relationship to Virginia Conference. Three, in what way can we best encourage our conservative brethren across the conference who share our concern for a clear-cut position of faith and practice? Four, what effects have we observed as a result of the 1965 and 1968 reaffirmations in conference on the Virginia Conference Rules and Discipline? So there. In 1965, Virginia Conference had said, we reaffirm our rules and discipline. And then they said it again in 1968, which I assume it's the one above here that we talked about. Saying so wasn't enough. Five, what do we mutually consider as the crucial point in our present organizational relationship for the best interest for our district? And six, to provide for a spiritual safeguard of our district, what do we envision as the Spirit's leading 
as to procedure and projection for the days ahead. The remainder of the morning was spent in discussing these questions. And then, the minute adds more, and after that, the remainder of the afternoon session was spent in further discussion of questions before the body relating to the relationship to West, of West Valley District to Virginia Conference. No decision was reached, and all were urged to give themselves to prayer and seeking the Holy Spirit's guidance in this matter. In the next meeting in March, question of our relationship to conference was raised and urgency expressed that we do something definite about it. It was pointed out that if the council did nothing, some of our members would take action. I think it was just simply implying that some members would leave. So on May 2nd, another month and a half down the way or two, brothers Lloyd and John brought a summary study of district organizational relationships. In recent years, the matter of abandoning our historic minister Mennonite practice of faith has shifted to the administrative levels of our conference. What's that mean? I think what it's saying is, through the years, we've seen slippage among the membership again and again and again. Now it's in the leadership. And so... Uh, that was one reason when somebody said recently apostasies from the top down, I, I questioned it a little bit because I was thinking about this statement. I think it all goes together somewhat. But anyway, I think it also goes when leaders don't hold the line. But these brethren couldn't hold the line. And we'll keep going. In that situation, at least. While our present relationship may retard the pace of apostasy within the conference, we experience only a minor effect in the general church program. And I think they're saying we might be helping a little bit, but it's not much in the, in the broader picture. As long as the West Valley District is part of Virginia Conference, we face a moral obligation to support her program and the general conference program of which we're a part. We can't just say, no, we're not going to put a committee member on. We, we're part of the conference. We have to Support it in some form. Four, we face a crisis with respect to our statement of practice. Some have been critical of strengthening our present rules and discipline without conference action. And so here was a district that was different. They, they had been set off as different, and yet there were some in the district that were saying, you can't go beyond the rules and discipline. We consider conference-type organization satisfactory, and in disassociating from Virginia Conference, we would prefer to form a conference of our own. In taking this step, we need to indicate concern for our brethren in other districts who take a similar position of faith. And so there were some in other districts that were conservative also and probably would come and join them, and they uh, knew that. Some of you have parents here who did that, I'm pretty sure. All right. <laughs> In view of the above mutual concerns and objectives, we recommend the following, that we appeal to Virginia Conference for an official release whereby we may be recognized as a separate organization. Further, that a committee be appointed to prepare a statement for this purpose to present it to Virginia Conference. This decision was so momentous that they took a roll call vote one by one and also contacted the brothers that weren't at the meeting there were no dissenting votes, but one abstention. Didn't say who it was, and I wouldn't tell you if it did, probably. They asked Lloyd Hurst, John Risser, James Gehring, Hurst, by the way, Enos Eatwell, and Lloyd Hartzler to draft the statement requesting disaffiliation. These brothers came up with this request to Virginia Conference, and I'll skip the title. In view of the diversity of doctrine and practice and administrative policies that exist in Virginia Mennonite Conference and in the best interest of our church life as well as future brotherhood relationships, we, the Ministerial Council of West Valley District, are requesting a release from organizational ties with Virginia Mennonite Conference. It is our desire to effect another conference organization for the purpose of carrying out the work of the Lord in our district in scriptural unity. While organizational union with Virginia Mennonite Conference may no longer be mutually beneficial, 
we do recognize that the unity of all believers in Christ supersedes organizational relationships, and we are desirous <coughs> of maintaining fraternal relations with brethren in Virginia Mennonite Conference. We appeal to our brethren in Virginia Mennonite Conference for an understanding consideration of our request and are hopeful for a considerate and positive response to the same West Valley Ministerial Council. On July 20th, West Rocking, West, West Rockingham, West Valley District Council met again. Brother Lloyd Hurst read us a letter from the Arrangement Committee of Virginia Conference, which included these actions. That, in view of the request of the West Valley District Ministerial Council for release from Virginia Conference, we appoint a Conference Brotherhood Committee to relate to the West Valley District in discovering ways to allow them district privileges and yet maintain appropriate organizational relationships. Okay, this is July 1970. The arranging committee says, let's appoint a committee to, to work with West Valley to in some way keep them in here, not to let them go. See if we can't come up with something. And, and, and that stretched on over the next year plus, uh, some back and forth. And we'll see some of that here. I don't have everything. In addition, that we recommend the preceding action for the approval of West Valley Ministerial Council with their reply being considered before finalizing the committee. We want them to speak to it before we move ahead with that. And so the council, however, this is the West Valley Council, still felt they should move ahead as planned. They took this action, moved that it is still our desire to effect another conference organization and that we are open to further negotiation with the executive committee or the arranging committee of Virginia Mennonite Conference second carried. Month and a half later, apparently not much had happened in the September 5th District Council. The minute says this, the status of our present relationship with Virginia Mennonite Conference, the situation within our district in this regard, and feasible future courses of action were discussed at length. Out of this discussion wrote, arose the following action. Move that we request our bishop brethren to present again our request for release to the Executive Committee of Virginia Conference. Carried. The matter of membership of a membership meeting to clarify our position in relation to Virginia Conference was discussed, but no formal action was taken in this regard. On November 6, 1970, the entire West Valley District, except Ryan Benner, Brother Ryan by this time was in Virginia Mennonite home. I uh, know that because in 69, maybe, my mom visited him there with a tape recorder to get information to write a book, and I remember patiently, well, maybe not patiently waiting, I was nine years old for her to get done. But anyway, the entire West Virginia District Ministry met with the Executive Committee of Virginia Mennonite Conference. The Virginia Conference moderator, John R. Mumal, moderated part of the meeting for the Lloyd Horse moderated part. They had a paper prepared by the Executive Committee entitled Basis of Conversation with West Valley District Council and Executive Committee of Conference. It contained 11 observations from West Valley District's perspective and 10 from Virginia Mennonite Conference perspective. And I, I think they actually worked together on that. It ended with four questions from the Executive Committee about possible directions. The first three had to do with some way or other to keep this thing together. The fourth one suggested that if the separation did happen, that there be a meeting five years later between representatives of the two to see how things were going and talk about it. Brother James Gehring, secretary, says in a minute that the discussion was lively and frank with broad participation and was held in a brotherly spirit. You ever been in that kind of a meeting? <clears throat> the West Virginia Ministerial Count, West Virginia, West Valley. If I say the wrong thing, just think the right thing. The West Valley District Ministerial Council met the next day and assigned a committee of seven to answer those four questions on behalf of the district. Daniel Brubaker, Sanford Shank, Lloyd Hurst, John Risser, James Gehring, Enos Heatwell, Lloyd Hartzler. The committee drafted a response to the questions. They insisted that a separation would be the best way to remedy the situation. In response to the fourth question, they said, we would declare ourselves open to a future meeting on a fraternal basis of representative groups from both conferences. 
it never happened. I guess it kind of became a moot matter after a few years. Neither one was interested anymore, I expect. In the meantime, in March, a group of about 45 people, most or many of them members of West Valley District who disagreed with the ministry's desire to disaffiliate, met with the Executive Committee of Virginia Conference. They told the Executive Committee that the number of those not in favor of separating in Middle District was quite large. This led the Executive Committee to ask the West Valley District for an opportunity to have a public meeting with all district members to present the Executive Committee's viewpoints on the matter. We have one brother here who was at that meeting. He was 22 at the time, went along with his parents. You can figure out who that was later. The Arranging Committee of Virginia Conference called a special session to deal with the West... Wait a minute. I think I skipped something. All right. West Valley District Ministry felt such a meeting held too many, too many possibilities for great misunderstandings and hard feelings proposed in a less formal way that representatives of Virginia Conference and the district set a day for those members who cared to to meet with them jointly. I don't think that ever happened. I'm not positive. This is what apparently led to the announcement that was made from the Virginia Mennonite Conference Executive Committee in the West Valley in all congregations, basically reassuring them that the members' concerns were being heard, that all members would have an, would be able to make an informed choice, and that all members would have the opportunity to share their wishes and concerns in due time. So Virginia Conference wanted to make sure they'd heard from these uh, dissatisfied people or whatever that didn't want to go with the new conference, and there were concerns that needed to be addressed. They, they did. But they, so they had this announcement made to try to help smooth that and let them know they would be hurt. And they were. The Arranging Committee of Virginia Conference called a special session to deal with the West Valley. This is a special session of Virginia Conference to deal with the West Valley request for disaffiliation. It met on Friday afternoon and evening, May 7th, 1971. The meeting lasted a long time and nothing happened. Uh, they did actually have a, a couple pages recommendation that they worked with that did include uh, releasing West Valley District, but they did not do it at that meeting. I would imagine. I expect, yeah. I wasn't there. I figured. Okay. <laughs> John's a little older than some of us. <laughs> and he was around and he was paying attention. <laughs> All right. In the July 1971 regular session of the Virginia Mennonite Conference, conference acted to begin the process. All right, 1971, it didn't become official till 1972, one year later. There's lots of things happening in there, and we'll notice a few. The conference acted to begin the process of allowing the West Valley District to disassociate. It authorized the executive committee to work with the ministry of West Valley District to ascertain the wishes of individual members regarding their church membership and property equities. In November, the West Valley District appointed a steering committee to function during the interim until the new conference is officially organized. It needed somebody to give all this guidance from their side, how to put it all together, which committee shall then be the Executive Committee of Conference. So once Southeastern was formed, moderator Lloyd Hurst, Assistant Moderator John Risser, Treasurer Lewis Heatwell, Secretary James Gearing, fifth member James Shank, became the Executive Committee. At that meeting in November, West Valley District Ministry narrowed down to two the options for the name of the new conference, the Berea Mennonite Conference and the Southeastern Mennonite Conference. They assigned the steering committee the job of deciding the procedure for finalizing the name. So, Brother John, how was it finalized? Do you know? Did did the members ever get to vote on it? Uh, the name. The name. Yeah, I couldn't. Well, it looked like in the next meeting the ministry decided it. Uh, that's, but I wasn't totally sure on that. Okay. 
you want more written, we're going to have to interview some people quick. <laughs> Trouble with memories from 50 years don't work the best. <laughs> Another reason history is not always so good. Uh, memories change over the years, viewpoints change, and, and the way you remember what happened changes. Okay, well, anyway. Immediately after that meeting, the process of having members choose which fellowship they wanted to go with began. Steering committee met often in the next number of months, and I just mentioned this just so you know, there's all kinds of stuff going on during this time. In the minutes, you find all kinds of things going on. A number of other committees were busy and at work, too. There was a committee that had been working for some time already, revising the 1963 Virginia Conference Rules and Discipline to get it ready for the new conference. Uh, Virginia Conference had come out with a new one in 70, and they didn't like it. It was... They were changing it to match what they were doing. That's what they were doing. So, Another committee had been operating for some time working on establishing a Christian day school. Still another one was formed by Virginia Conference and West Valley together. This was a kind of a joint steering committee. And they were tasked with the lion's share of the working through the details involved with the disaffiliation from both sides. This committee was to ascertain from all district members which group they wanted to go with. It planned four area meetings to explain what Southeastern was wanting to do and be, and as well as what Virginia Conference planned for those that didn't go along, so that all that was clear. At the end of the meetings, every member was given a simple questionnaire to return later to the joint committee. It contained a brief, well, hardly an explanation, explained two check. It had two check boxes. One said, I want my member I want to be part of the new Southeastern Conference. The other said, I want to retain my membership at Virginia Conference. The joint committee would follow up on those not returning questionnaires by a specific time. Both the conference and the district wanted to avoid having members just falling through the cracks and, and just leaving, that kind of thing. And there probably were a few that did. I don't have that record. John probably would know better than I would. But so by June, well, okay, the target date for the Joint Committee to complete it, its work was June 1st, 1972. I'm not sure whether it was all done by then. After that, anybody that wanted to say, well, I want to change my mind and go to Southeastern after all, would need a church letter. Or if they said I wanted to come stay in Virginia and they'd already said otherwise, they needed a church letter. By June 30th, 1972, those who chose with, to go with Southeastern numbered 559. Those choosing to go with Virginia Mennonite Conference numbered 109. Each ordained brother who wanted to go with Southeastern was asked to send a letter stating their intent to the Virginia Mennonite Conference. 34 brothers did so. So the district had grown in those years. One fairly controversial situation the Joint Committee dealt with involved church properties, and here's one of these that you have a one paragraph that probably could have ten pages of one if that was all said and done. The group not going with Southeastern originally wanted the bank meeting house. It was built in 1964. This was 1970. West Valley District offered peak instead. That didn't work. Uh, they didn't feel they could, should give up the bank. Their members had paid for building it. Uh, negotiations continued. Virginia Mennonite Conference and the district eventually agreed that the new conference would pay $25,000. This was close to 13% of the total worth of the West Valley District Church properties. Next statement is wrong as far as I can tell. I'm not sure where I got it. I got to thinking about that and went back and looked. Uh, better statement there is it was about one-third of the value of the New Bank Church, or at least what Virginia Conference said the New Bank Church was worth. And one-third of the bank membership stayed with Virginia Conference. And so they had those those two okay, and 13 percent okay, now I'm getting confused. Let's uh, <laughs> yeah, no, I'm right. I Okay, it was 13% of the, yeah, all right. 
the, the total number of members, if you look up there a few paragraphs above, it doesn't sync with that. It's more than 13% that stayed with Virginia. It's about 40. So anyway, that's, that's what got me to wondering, is that a correct statement? It's it's wrong statement. I know that. So anyway, a third of the bank membership stayed, and that was also figuring in on this price. It's about $25,000. It's relatively a third of 85, <laughs> fairly relatively. <laughs> It was also the value the executive committee placed on the Pike Church property when it assigned values for the district properties. This $25,000 would go to Virginia Mennonite Conference to provide for the building of a new place of worship for those members of West Valley District who chose to remain in Virginia Mennonite Conference. And they used it to help build the Dayton Mennonite Church. West Valley District in general felt that was too high, but felt like they should go ahead and pay it anyway. And the, the release from Virginia Conference became effective in July 1972. And I didn't go any further than that, but I think you'll find it. The first annual session of Southeastern Mennonite Conference was about that time, too. And we're in July. This year will be 50 years out. We're in our 51st annual session to this last evening, well, yesterday but I'll say it again because the first annual session was at the beginning of year one they should have called it zero I guess <laughs> so 51 for us is actually at the end of 50 years interesting story I considered listing you know the, the each of the issues that they were dealing with. For the most part, we, we were doing better with those issues themselves. I didn't see much use to list them. <laughs> the whole uh, issue of are we following our rules and discipline, upholding it, we may be following them some more than we like. And uh, we should keep that in mind. I'm not going to preach anymore. Uh, leave that to someone else. Thank you all.